Amen. What a glorious truth to remind ourselves of that there is no one like our God. That is a truth that is affirmed over and over and over again in Scripture. Um, so before we get to the message today, just a couple of uh, things to bring you aware of, make you aware of, announcements in your worship guide. And I want to invite you to, if you feel comfortable, those worship guides were placed in there earlier this week for you to be able to access. Uh, we're trying to go back now that we're bringing more activities on uh, campus to more of a four-page worship guide like we've had before. And so there's a place there for you to take notes. If you want to take sermon notes and study the message a little bit more later on, you can do that. In that worship guide, you will see an announcement for an event that we are planning on doing in a few weeks for uh, Halloween uh, called our drive through Trunk or Treat. One of the great challenges that we have faced over the course of the last six months of coronavirus is it's really affected the way that we are able to do ministry to our families and to do ministry to the community. We're, we're really, like many churches, trying to figure out what, what can we do, how can we encourage people. And uh, Michael Gentry, our interim minister of preschool and children, has put together a team to come up with the idea of trying to do what, what many churches do as a trunk or treat, but instead of kind of congregating people in an isolated space, uh, utilizing the, the blessings of having a large parking lot to spread those, uh, those stations out and allow people to drive through with their children and receive some candy. I know that in my neighborhood, the conversation about what are we going to do with Halloween and trick-or-treating, are we going to have trick-or-treating this year? Are people even going to be giving out candy? I mean, these are questions that a lot of families in my neighborhood are asking right now. And so we're going to be doing this uh, trunk or treat, and uh, we're going to have about 15 or so stations, we hope, that we'll be able to spread out. And to do that, we need help. We need those who, who would like to participate by working at a station. You'll set up your car and open up your tailgate or your trunk or whatever, and, and uh, you'll be willing to pass out candy. We'll obviously be asking people to wear masks and gloves, and we'll have the candy pre-bagged and all that kind of stuff. And if you're willing to do that and help us out with that, then uh, let me or let Michael know that. Uh, he's, he's, he's here, and he, you can say, hey, I'd be willing to volunteer to help out with that. We also need you to help us with candy, okay? We, uh, we, we anticipate, I anticipate, that uh, given the environment we've been in over the last six months <clears throat> and given the hunger that families have to have stuff to do, uh, that uh, this has the potential to have a lot of people come through it. And um, we want to make sure that we have plenty of candy for this event and so we need your help as church family to donate candy to it. And uh, those of you that have been here for the last couple of years know that I have kind of a candy standard when it comes to handing out candy. Um, uh, we don't want to hand out bad candy. We want to hand out good candy. We want to hand out candy that kids like. Uh, there is nothing more disappointing than going trick-or-treating to someone's house and they give you candy that you don't want to eat, okay? Um, so we want to give out good candy. If you don't really know what a standard of good candy is, take your grandchildren or your children with you and let them pick out the candy that you're going to bring to the church, okay? That's a way to know what is good candy. If you say, do you want this? And they go, eh, I don't want that. Then you know that's pretty much not something you want to bring to the church to give out. We will have collection barrels for the next few weeks for you to do that, so uh, please help us out. Grab, as you go, those of you that are going to the store, grab a couple of bags of candy at Walgreens or Walmart or someplace like that and bring it to us. 
Uh, if you don't want to go to the store, but you'd like to donate towards that cause, then I would say that's perfectly fine. We have money in the budget that we're going to be using to help purchase some candy, but we could always use some more. So help us out with some candy if you would. That would be great. And then also, those of you, many of you know that on Wednesday nights, because we haven't been having traditional prayer meeting, we've been doing just kind of midweek online gatherings is what I've been calling them on my Facebook Live. And uh, many weeks, it's just me sitting there talking to a computer screen and trying to interact with people. Uh, and many of you are very faithful to join every single Wednesday night. And uh, we have kind of silly, goofy questions that I ask that people interact with. Uh, but from time to time, I like to shake it up. So this week, we're going to have a Facebook Live with me and Michael Gentry. And uh, we want you guys to get to know Michael a little bit better. And so Michael is going to come on board, and we're going to do Facebook Live in my office with the two of us. Uh, and so we want you to ask some questions of me and Michael. Ask some questions of him if you'd like to know more about him personally. Um, and uh, you can do that by emailing me a question or sending me something as a message through Facebook, and we'll try to uh, answer those on this coming Wednesday night. So we invite you to join. That's on my Facebook Live. So if you're connected with me on Facebook, you can see that at 6 o'clock Wednesday night. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2. We've been in Paul's letter to the Colossians now for about seven or eight weeks. <clears throat> Today we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, and we're going to be looking at the importance of Christians guarding our religious freedom or our religious liberty in Christ. Now when we talk about guarding our freedom or our liberty, we're not necessarily talking about guarding our liberty from a nationalistic sense. We're not talking about guarding our religious freedoms or liberties with regards to what we as Christian citizens can do in a free country. We're talking about how do we guard our own personal Christian liberties with regards to what we can and what we should not do as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. As always, I'm grateful for the opportunity to stand before you today and teach and proclaim the Word of God. And it's important for us to remember that the primary purpose for which the church gathers on the Lord's Day is to worship our Savior and to receive the Word of God. Corporate worship is not given to the church primarily as an evangelistic tool to reach lost people, even though lost people can and should be saved in our worship gatherings. Corporate worship is not given to the church primarily as a vehicle to entertain Christians and encourage them into how to have a more happy and fulfilled life, even though good worship can and will stir our emotions and good sermons will encourage us to pursue happiness in Christ and to live more fulfilled in Him. Christian worship is given for one reason, and that is for us to declare the glory of Christ and to be fed as believers from His Word. And it is for this reason that I'm always glad that as a church we can get together and, and re read and preach through a book of the Bible because when we walk through a Bible book, we encounter God's Word the way it was written and the way it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we come across important passages that we might otherwise be tempted to skip or not preach over because we wouldn't just go and say, okay, I think I want to preach a, a sermon today on legalism and worshiping of angels and asceticism. We probably, I probably, if I'm just picking out passages on my own, would not pick Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23 as a top 10 sermon I want to develop. But today's passage is one of those that normally we might skip over trying to study in our personal Bible reading or preaching 
because the Holy Spirit has inspired it and led, it, led us to it today in our journey through Colossians, we will look at it and see what it has to say for us. So let's read together Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. <clears throat> Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Bad theology hurts people. It's a very core conviction of mine. Bad theology leads people to bad practice in their life. Bad theology blinds people to the only spiritual truth that can actually save them, which is justification of their sin by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Bad theology hurts people. What we believe matters. For example, Hindu theology teaches in a continuous cycle of life and reincarnation and that your status in the next life is dependent upon your choices and your practices in this one. Animistic theology, which we see a lot in Africa, teaches you that you have the ability to manipulate the spirit world to move in your favor by doing certain things that appease the spirits. And it's... it's, it's American counterpart is the prosperity gospel that teaches people that God's main purpose in your life is physical and financial prosperity and that by sowing seeds of faith you can ensure God's blessings in those areas. All of those are examples of bad theology which hurt people, which, which lead to bad practices and blinds people to the truth. Another very dangerous form of theology which has been in the church since its inception is the theology of legalism. And this is the theology that Paul is directly addressing in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Since we began this book, I told you that one of the primary reasons for Paul's letter was to counter a dangerous false teaching that it's made its way into the believers of Colossae. And in this particular section, we get some foundational elements of what this teaching was like. These false teachers taught that we could acquire holiness through asceticism or self-denial, that they could measure righteousness by keeping certain religious festivals and practices, that people could achieve a state of wisdom that allows them to receive visions and messages from angels, and that they could enter into a state of worship that was led by angelic messengers. Now, while we don't really see a lot of these particular elements within American theology today, 
The fundamental issue that Paul is dealing with is not the specific heretical teachings of the false teachers, but the core problem behind those teachings, which is the problem of the issue between religious legalism versus the Christian's liberty in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a battle that the church has wrestled with over and over and over again, and it takes many, many different forms. For instance, when we think about legalism, it, it, it leads us to questions like, what religious works can I perform that will please God and make me righteous before Him? What works can I do that will merit God's favor over me? What, what things can I do this week that will make God more favored towards me? And do those who fanatically keep all the religious rules have a higher standing before God than those who don't? These are questions of legalism. In the same way, we wrestle with, Christ, with questions over the Christian's liberty in Christ. Questions such as, as a believer, if I do something that isn't really God's best or His preferred will for me, will I lose God's favor? When I sin as a Christian, do I have to perform some recipe of religious works that will once again merit God's favor or approval of me? As a Christian, does God primarily measure me and my worthiness before Him by the quantity and quality of my religious deeds? Or does He measure me and my worthiness by my faith in Jesus Christ alone? And if I'm really only measured by my faith in Christ alone, then am I free to do whatever I feel like doing? That's what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6. If, if the good news is that I'm justified before God and accepted before Him on the basis of my faith, then the good news is that He'll forgive me of anything so I can just go do whatever I want to because God will forgive me. And Paul says, no, no, that's not the way it works. Does it really make a difference if I go to church and read my Bible and try to keep God's Word? If, if those things don't give God more favor over me, does it really make a difference then? These are questions about Christian liberty. Legalism, and I, I firmly believe that, that most of us as, as, as followers of Christ are really legalists at heart. I, I'm, a, I'm a closet legalist because what I really desire is for the Christian life to be boiled down to an easy, manageable set of rules that God expects of me and by which I can define who is in the church and who is not in the church. That would be really, really easy, wouldn't it? This is, this is kind of the old Baptist cliche that, that Christians don't drink and don't chew and don't go with girls who do, right? You remember you've heard that before? That, that being a Christian is defined by these actions that you do and these other actions that you avoid. And it gives us a nice, neat scorecard to measure ourselves and to measure everyone else. But that's not the way salvation works. Salvation works by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then the other side of it is, well, as a follower of Jesus, if I'm not measured in my favor before God by the quality and the quantity of my personal religious practices. And what difference does it really make if I read my Bible? What difference does it really make if I go to church? What difference does it really make if I pray? What difference does it really make if I, if I try to take certain 
certain sinful practices out of my life and I try to put in those place good things. And we're going to get to that in chapter 3 in just, a, in just a couple of weeks. But I want us to see three truths here about guarding our freedom in Jesus Christ. And the first of those truths is what I would call the seductive lure of legalism. Now, I can't point you to one particular verse in this text because the entire passage is talking about a legalistic teaching that had infiltrated the church. As was common in many first century churches, soon after the founding of the church in Colossae, false teachers began to creep into the church and they began to add religious works and false beliefs to the gospel that the Colossians had received. And it's important for us to remember that much of the religious culture within the first century was grounded in religious legalism, especially first century Judaism. By the time of Christ, Jews had come to believe that righteousness was gained solely by keeping the law. So as a result, there, were a, there was a list of hundreds of rules that governed what a person could do and what a person could not do in order to be right with God. Righteousness was gained by participating in religious festivals and by adhering to the strict set of religious rules. In the churches of Galatia, some false teachers also taught that Gentiles, non-Jews, could not be saved unless they were first circumcised according to the Old Testament law, that, that if you were going to be a Christian, you had to be part of the people of God, and that meant coming that meant following the law, and that meant that the law prescribed that every male had to be circumcised. So therefore, it just made sense to those teachers that if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you also needed to be a Jew, and if you're going to be a Jew, you need to be circumcised. They added circumcision to the gospel. And anytime you say that salvation is Jesus and, you lose the gospel. Anytime you add something to Christ as the basis for salvation, you lose Christ. By nature, most false religious beliefs are grounded in a form of legalism that teaches that righteousness can be attained by keeping certain religious rules and participating in certain religious practices. Almost every false belief is grounded in some sort of legalistic belief that righteousness before God, whoever that God is, is earned by how you live and the choices you make and what you do. Legalism is based on the belief that it's what we do that makes us right with God. And by its very nature, legalism is not grounded in the doctrine of what we would call sola fide, which is faith alone, which teaches us that faith in Jesus Christ alone secures our right standing before God and continues to make us just before Him. If we are saved by faith alone in Christ, if it's not because of the perfections of our life that saves us, then our salvation is not only secured by our faith alone in Christ, our salvation is kept by our faith alone in Christ. And while we don't make Christians today keep certain festivals or abstain from certain foods, we have other forms of legalism in the contemporary church. Christians are measured on things such as abstaining from things such as alcohol or gambling and abstaining from some forms of entertainment. Christians are judged on whether they cut their grass on Sunday or what their voting preferences are. 
Even to the point that in this particular election cycle, we have had some pastors recently suggest that a person could not be a Christian and vote for a certain candidate, thereby attaching political preference to a person's personal standing before God. And there are three distinct problems with legalism. They're in your notes. Number one, legalism defines us by something other than Jesus Christ. Legalism defines our Christian standing by something other than Christ. This is what Paul is referring to in verse 16 when he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. This idea of let no one pass judgment on you is a, is a pretty interesting phrase because the idea of passing judgment on others is probably the most popular vice in our particular culture. The non-Christian's favorite Bible verse is Matthew 7, 1, which says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. And so what is Paul talking about here when he says, Do not let anyone pass judgment on you? What is he talking about? He's talking about submitting to a human standard for our spiritual validation. That's what he's talking about. Legalism is submitting to a human standard in order to validate ourselves spiritually. And Paul is telling Christians that we should not allow ourselves to be defined by the religious rules that others would impose. <coughs> we shouldn't be overwhelmed or stressed with the task of trying to keep religious rules. Why? Because man-imposed religious rules create a system which we have the danger of defining us as Christians by something other than Christ. Man-made religious rules can sometimes be man-centered attempts to demonstrate righteous externally rather than trust in God's grace to make us righteous internally. It's just easier in the Christian life to know what the rules are and to keep them than it is to pursue intimacy and identity in Christ. But I want us to understand this. You are not defined as a follower of Christ by what you do. And you are not defined as a follower of Christ by what you deny. You are defined as a follower of Christ by the one in whom you died. Paul says in verse 20 of Colossians 2, If with Christ you died, why, if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations? The gospel tells us that when we place our faith in Jesus, we have died in Christ. We have died to the system that would merit righteousness by the perfections of our behavior or our religious practices. Legalism is a deadly kind of spiritual cancer because it subtly teaches us to define our righteousness by something other than Jesus. But secondly, it disqualifies us from living by grace alone. Verse 18, Paul says, Let no one disqualify you. It's an interesting phrase because Paul goes on further to say not only does, does legalism define us by something other than Jesus, but it also disqualifies us in a way from something. If our lives become entirely defined by earning righteousness according to keeping external religious rules, 
then Paul says, by nature of that decision, we have disqualified ourselves from salvation by grace alone. We have disqualified ourselves from living according to the gospel. And it's interesting because when he says that you have disqualified, it means that there's something that qualifies us before God and there's something that disqualifies us. And what qualifies us before God? What qualifies us is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us when we place our faith in Him. And therefore, if we begin to measure our righteousness by our keeping the rules, we have disqualified ourselves from faith in Christ alone And we've disqualified ourselves from the grace that comes by living by faith alone. Paul says in the book of Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Not for a list of rules. Jesus didn't set you free in Him in order to give you a list of rules. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then he says to those who would define themselves by these religious rules, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Legalism defines us by something other than Jesus. It disqualifies us from living by grace alone. And really the big problem of legalism is it deceives us in how to really avoid sin. Paul says in verse 23 that these practices, these rules have have an appearance of wisdom. They promote self-made religion. And that, that phrase right there should scare us as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't want to follow anything that promotes self-made religion. Because we can't make ourselves righteous before God. He says that these rules appear to be wise. They have an appearance of wisdom. In other words, these these rules seem to make sense to our human sensibilities that want to prove our righteousness before God. But he says the problem is that they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, having a list of religious rules doesn't help us to avoid breaking the rules and it doesn't stop our sinful hearts from pursuing sin. You see... Telling an alcoholic that alcohol can cause heart disease and liver failure and that it can ruin personal relationships does not take away the alcoholic's desire for alcohol. Telling someone that sex outside of a committed marital relationship between one man and one woman does not kill the desire to have sex outside of marriage. And coming to church faithfully every week and knowing all the religious rules does not make us less likely to follow the sinful inclinations of our heart. What really helps us to avoid sin is not legalism, it's grace. And what really takes away the power of sin in our lives is having a greater knowledge and a deeper appreciation for God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so we see the seductive lure of legalism, but then through grace we see the true source of our power as Christians. We see the true source of the Christian's power. Now, to understand this passage, this is why we preach through books of the Bible. We have to understand the whole context and we have to go back because last week and last week's message, Paul set a foundation for what he's talking about here. And he talked about how Christians' practice flows out of our personal standing before God. And he gave us several powerful truths 
about the, the Christians standing before God. He says that in chapter 2, verse 10, we've been filled with the Spirit of Christ. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we are united to Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 12, we've been raised in Jesus to a new life. In chapter 2, verse 13, we are now alive in Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses, but now we are alive in Him. And in chapter 2, verse 13, again, we've been forgiven of our trespasses. And so the true source of the Christian's power in this life to sin less and to do more of what God desires of us is not diligently keeping a list of rules. The true source of our power is preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. It's to remind ourselves that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ, that we've been filled with the Spirit, that we have the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead inside of us, that, that we are united to Him, that we've been forgiven of a great laundry list of trespasses. And those motivations of grace are better at helping us to avoid sin than giving us a list of rules and saying Christians are do this and Christians don't do that. He gives us kind of three truths here. He says, first of all, we must trust in the substance and not the shadows. In verse 17, Paul tells the Colossians that these religious festivals and these prohibitions on certain foods that were given to the Jews and that these false teachers were advocating, that these things were not given to make people righteous. The Jews didn't practice Passover or the Feast of Booze or the Festival of Trumpets. They didn't practice those things because they made them righteous before God. Those festivals were given to point to righteousness in someone else. These rules and these festivals are the shadows of something better to come, not the substance. The substance is Jesus Christ. In other words, all the religious festivals of the Old Testament were ultimately not about the Jews earning righteousness. They were signs pointing forward to Jesus, the true source of righteousness. And the Jews were not made righteous by keeping the Passover. Righteousness was earned by the Jews by having faith in the promise to which the Passover pointed. Righteousness was not earned in the act of denying certain foods. It was the denial of those foods that pointed to a greater source of fulfillment that was to come in Christ. The gospel declares that all the righteousness that we could not earn and cannot keep has been completely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the price of our unrighteous deeds has been completely paid by the blood of Christ on the cross. This is why one of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, God made him who knew no sin, the righteous one Christ, to become sin so that we, the unrighteous ones, could become the righteousness of God. That's where the transaction takes place. We must trust in the substance of Christ, not the shadows of the rules that point to him. Secondly, we must hold fast to Christ who is the head. Paul says the problem with these false teachers is that they start out with the gospel, but then they let go of Christ and teach people to trust in works. And I love this phrase that he says in, 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 um, in verse uh, 18 when he describes these false teachers as puffed up without reason. Where I was growing up, that's called having a big head, right? They got a big head. They think that they're spiritual experts and they walk around arrogantly keep 
with this arrogant list of rules that defines who's in the club and who's not and who is doing good and who's not. And Paul says they are big heads. They are puffed up without reason. They have an inflated view of their own goodness and their own wisdom and they have it for no reason. They are religiously arrogant. And this is the problem with legalism is it creates religiously arrogant people who deny the gospel and don't share the gospel with others. And Paul says this happens because these false teachers have let go of Jesus. They are not holding fast to the head. Paul returns to this very familiar metaphor of the church as the body of Christ and that true believers are those who are members of his body that are connected to the head, Jesus Christ. And he says that we cannot grow in godliness if we disconnect ourselves from the head because it is the head that supplies all that is needed for spiritual growth. Our true source of spiritual power in the Christian life comes from staying connected to Jesus and trusting in His grace to save us, not in our personal religious perfections. But thirdly, he says, we must remember that our real life is in Christ. We, don't only, we not only need to hold on to the head, we need to remember that real life is in Christ. We return to verse 20 and Paul says, If with Christ you have died to these elemental spirits, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Paul reminds us that because we died with Christ, we were raised with Christ. And now it is Christ that is our life, not religion. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to echo this in verse 3, in chapter 3, verse 4, when he says, Christ is your life, not all this other stuff. And if we, are, if we have died in Christ, then we are no longer to look to this world for our spiritual lives. We are no longer spiritually alive by keeping the world's rules and regulations. We are dead to the world. Real life is found in Christ, not in empty, shallow, and ritualistic rules. So we must trust the substance, not the shadows. We must hold fast to Jesus, the head, and remember that real life is found in a personal relationship with Him. And we're to avoid the subtle lure of legalism and trust in Christ as our power. And then Paul says, as a result of that, we then follow the path of true Christian liberty. We follow the path of true Christian liberty. One of the great struggles in the Christian faith, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's something I struggle with daily, is wrestling between legalism and license. Legalism and liberty. If we were not made righteous by God before God by keeping rules, then what's the point of pursuing good works? If, if coming to church every Sunday doesn't make me more righteous before Him, then what difference does it really make whether I come at all? What kinds of things can we pursue in life and not sin? Wouldn't that be really easy? Wouldn't it be really easy if we were told you can, you can do these things and not sin? Like you can, you, can, you can be a Mississippi State fan and not sin, but if you're an Ole Miss fan, you've crossed the line. Wouldn't it be really easy if it was just boiled down to things like that? Is it a sin to drink any alcohol at all? Is it a sin to smoke cigarettes? And if it's a sin to smoke cigarettes, what about a pipe or a cigar? Is smoking cigarettes a sin or is smoking a cigar not? 
Is it a sin to watch a rated R movie? Is it a sin to work on Sunday? Is it a sin to operate a business that is open on Sunday? Is it a sin to play cards? Is playing poker a sin, but playing rook is not? Can some of these things be a violation of conscience for some Christians and not for others? Christian liberty is an area that is hard to navigate because it means that we have to trust in the Holy Spirit to lead us to avoid things that would be a hindrance to our spiritual growth and our spiritual witness to others. And Christian liberty also helps us to understand that some things may be a matter of religious conscience and conviction for some, but may not be a matter of religious conviction for others. The Bible says that some things may be a sin to some believers and may not be a sin to others. That's why he says if, if, it, if it's sin to you, if someone knows it to be sin, then don't do it. Now this does not apply to things that Scripture clearly defines as sin. Things such as sexual immorality, murder, lying, slander, idolatry, and taking God's name in vain. These things are obvious sins that apply to all people. But it does apply to certain personal convictions that some people may share that others do not, such as the use of alcohol and what it means to sanctify the Lord's day as holy. So how do we navigate this path of Christian liberty? How do we, how do we walk through liberty without imposing rules on others that define their righteousness? Well, let me give you, let me give you three thoughts. Number one... Don't rely on empty regulations to define you. This goes back to the first thing that we talked about in, in, in the idea of legalism, which is legalism defines us by something other than Christ. And so we want to be careful not to rely on empty regulations to define us. Paul says in verses 20 and 21 that we are not defined by regulations and prohibitions. Paul says we're not defined by things such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we cannot navigate the boundaries of Christian liberty and conviction by imposing strict religious rules that define all Christians. For instance, someone may have the personal conviction that you should not partake of alcohol and you should not smoke at all. And they may say something like, a person cannot be a mature and growing Christian and partake of alcohol or smoke tobacco. I've heard that many times. But that restriction imposes a rule on all believers that cannot be validated. For instance, one of my preaching heroes is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was one of the most powerful preachers the church has ever known who influenced thousands and thousands of people for Christ. Spurgeon also spoke of his personal fondness for a good cigar every once in a while. And he talked about the fact that he loved to have a glass of brandy occasionally. And while I may not personally share in Spurgeon's fondness for a cigar or brandy, I cannot diminish Spurgeon's character and I cannot deny the influence that he had for Christ simply because he didn't share the same convictions that I do. So let's don't rely on empty regulations to define us. Let's don't say things such as, you can't be a growing and mature Christian and do this when the Bible doesn't specifically prohibit that. Secondly, let's don't add human works to the finished work of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 22 and 23 
when he talks about all these different regulations and he says these are just human precepts and teachings that have an appearance of wisdom. They promote self-made religion, asceticism, severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul reminds us that we need to avoid adding human works and regulations to the finished work of Jesus because at the cross, our spiritual transaction before God took place. And God took our unrighteousness and placed it on Jesus and took Jesus' righteousness and placed it on us. Full and complete salvation was accomplished. And so we don't add religious works to the finished work of Christ to be the measure of our righteousness. And while we may abstain from certain things because of personal religious conviction, and we may perform certain practices out of gratitude for Christ, we understand that these things do not make us more righteous before God. Christian liberty understands that what may be a personal conviction for me doesn't have to be a personal conviction for all. And what may be beneficial for my walk with Jesus might be beneficial to others also, but it doesn't have to be necessary for their salvation or their sanctification. Don't add human works to the finished work of Christ. And then thirdly, I would say, when it comes to the area of Christian liberty, don't abuse your grace-empowered freedoms. Don't abuse your grace-empowered freedoms. The testimony of Scripture tells us that while Christian liberty may allow some people to do things that others may not feel comfortable to pursuing, we must be careful not to abuse our freedoms in such a way that it causes others to stumble or the gospel may be diluted. I believe this was behind Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 regarding eating meat offered to idols. And Paul's principle there is we need to understand that we are free in Christ to pursue and practice certain liberties, but we are not always free in Christ at all times to practice them. For instance, I may understand and have a personal conviction that I shouldn't cut my grass on Sunday. But others may understand that Christian liberty allows me to cut my grass and do yard work on Sundays and not make me less righteous before Christ. But when most convictions become a, a hindrance to witness to our lost neighbors, then we may decide not to do that. Another example. I work with a ministry that works in Uganda, and you know that. And when we allow missionary teams to come to Abana's Hope, we require that while those teams are in Africa, they do not partake of any alcohol, even if their personal conviction doesn't see a problem with a Christian consuming alcohol. The reason we do this is because of the high rate of alcoholism in Central Africa, and that many of our new Christians have been delivered from the sin of alcoholism, and the love of alcohol is a hindrance to many Africans to trust the gospel. And so for the sake of witness, we say if you're going to be on, our relig on a mission trip with our organization, please do not uh, consume any alcohol once you land in Africa until you leave. We don't do this to impose a man-made rule that defines what a good Christian is and what a good Christian is not. We do it because we know that if they were to consume alcohol, it could be a hindrance to their witness to the people that we are ministering to. We need to understand that as followers of Jesus, we have 
liberty, but we need to be careful not to abuse those grace-empowered freedoms. In navigating the doctrine of Christian liberty, let us avoid the temptation to allow any empty regulations to define who we are in Jesus Christ. Let us not add human works to the finished work of Christ and let us not abuse our grace-empowered freedoms in Christ. And one thing that I can tell you is sure, that one thing and one thing only can truly save you, and that is complete and total faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Religious works cannot save you. Being a good person cannot overcome your sin problem. Only complete surrender and trust in Jesus Christ can save you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Before we leave this morning, we want to just offer an opportunity for those who do not know Christ to trust in the gospel. And, and maybe what you have heard from the Holy Spirit today is that, is that at heart you've been kind of a closet legalist lately. And really this applies in two ways. It applies to those who are here who have only and always defined their standing before God by the perfections of their personal choices. If that's the case, then it's pretty common that you would not have trusted in Christ at all. If, if you're defining your righteousness solely by your personal goodness and the personal products of your works that you are producing, then you probably have never trusted in Christ alone. And we want to invite you today not to do less good, but to surrender all of your goodness and all of your sin at the cross of Jesus Christ and to trust the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus alone to save you. Because if you're trusting in your works, then every night when you go to bed, you have this gnawing little feeling inside of you that says, have I done enough today for God to be pleased with me? Do I know for sure that I'm going to heaven because I've been good enough? And that will never save you. So if you're struggling with your own personal standing before God because you've never trusted in Christ alone to save you, we want to invite you to do that today. But for others of us in here, we've trusted in Christ to save us. The problem is we keep running back to a bunch of man-made rules to define us. And maybe today you need to say, you know what, I need to, I need to learn the balance between conviction and, and righteousness. And that there's some things for me that are my personal convictions, but that doesn't make me righteous before Him, and it doesn't make others less righteous. And maybe today you need to just kind of give up the legalistic rules and live in the power of grace. Whatever it is, if you need to talk to somebody today, you can talk to me before you leave. One of our staff members will be glad to pray with you. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you'd like to talk to somebody about that, please see me today. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the power of grace. I thank you that we stand here today saved by grace and grace alone. That it's the grace of God that saved me over 30 years ago and it's the grace of God that keeps me saved today. And it's the grace of God that will one day perfectly and completely save me in heaven. Father, thank you for your grace. And help me as a, as a follower of Christ to live by grace alone. And help me to guard my liberty. Help me to guard the things that you have given me in life closely. Help me to make wise choices that, that reflect the goodness and the grace of God and not the goodness of myself and the rules that I keep. Father, help me to be a good example of the gospel to others. May my conversations be seasoned with the gospel and may my life be such that it points people 
to Christ and not to me. For any who are here today, Lord, that do not know for sure that they have been forgiven of their sins and that they have trusted in you, I pray, God, you would give them the faith to believe and the courage to respond before they leave today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.